And so this is our birthday. Happy birthday, Harvest. <clears throat> Amen. And uh, we, we, uh, we had some photographs that we put up on, online this week just kind of about that, but we don't have, I think we don't have any pictures of the actual launch service on that particular day. And partially that's because, uh, just a little historical note, we started this church five days after 9-11. And so the mood wasn't exactly uh, balloons and streamers and uh, let's take pictures and let's really celebrate this. It was really a bit of a, even though you're celebrating the launching of a church and you want to kind of you know, have some fun with that, uh, the mood uh, really around uh, the city and really everywhere was uh, really not um, in that lane. And so you know, we got together, and I remember the message uh, that day was in John chapter 10. Uh, the sheep hear the shepherd's voice. They know his voice, and we needed to hear that word on that day. We needed to know that our shepherd knew what was going on in a world that had just become completely upside down. And uh, so we uh, rejoice in how God spoke to us that day. And then all these 17 years later, what God is doing here, amen? I'm just so grateful for what he's doing here in our church, and I'm glad you could all be a part of it. That's the entire celebration right there. That's the 17th anniversary uh, service right in those few minutes. A couple of years from now, we'll have a big 20th one, uh, but uh, that's it. A little low key. So hopefully you have your Bibles in front of you right now. We're going to be in the book of Daniel chapter 2. And um, really playing off of what I just said over the last few minutes about our anniversary in 9-11, we cannot be certain of very much in this world, can we? It's hard to have certainty about anything. And throughout history, uh, human beings have faced uncertainty about Personal things, this would be true of you and me, uh, health, relationships, earning power, jobs, uh, in, more global, in a more global sense around the world. There's no certainty about the weather. There's no certainty about things like climate change and is it real or is it not? We're not certain. Alliances between countries, trade agreements and wars, all of these things create uncertainty in the world. And we think about kind of like the moral norms that, that, um, that undergird Western or undergirded Western society, the moral norms that once seemed unmovable in our society have now largely made our country unrecognizable because of the changes. And it isn't that every generation, I don't think that our generation is necessarily so uh, special that we think that we're the only ones who have ever faced uh, this uh, kind of thing with all the uncertainty and changes. It isn't that every generation in history hasn't faced uncertainty. They certainly have. I think what's different today as I read and as I look at this myself and think about it, what's really changed today is the rapid pace at which things are changing that that is what's different from every other uh, period in history. Things are just moving at a speed that is um, uh, so difficult for us to even keep up with. Beyond that, we're facing a new philosophy today that's very different than what any other period in history faced. And that is that we now live in a postmodern era where, listen, this word is so important, where disruption Disruption is a high value, something to be sought after. We want to disrupt governments. We want to disrupt your life. We want to disrupt relationships. Disruption is a defining characteristic of this postmodern era that we live in. In fact, one author, Jonathan Fields, said this, disruption is the new normal. Now more than ever, you cannot lock down the future. Now, that would all be very depressing. And it's in, in a sense, when you think about it, if that was our only play, it would be very fatalistic. But you and I can have certainty this morning about what really matters. There are some certainties that the followers of Jesus Christ, those who believe in the Word of God, can have. And we are in a series uh, titled Resolved. And in order to be resolved, there are things we need to be able to grab onto and know they're sure, things that we can be certain about. And so we're going to look in Daniel chapter 2 where we see an unparalleled example of certainty that flows from this one thing. Listen now, three words. An unparalleled certainty that flows from who God is. Who God is. No matter what's happening in the world, no matter what's happening in each of your individual lives and the pressures you're facing. Because God is God of gods. 
there is something, some things that I can be certain of. And that's what we're going to go after today in Daniel chapter 2. So why don't you bow your heads with me right now. We're going to pray and commit our uh, time to the Lord. Father, um, help us in these moments. We uh, need your Holy Spirit to move in this place to help us hear what we need to hear, to grasp it, have an understanding of what we're hearing, to then believe it, to conform our wills to your will, and to do what we're hearing from your word. So, Father, we do need your spirit for that work in us, and we know that if we could do that, if that could happen today as we look at your word, that it would transform us more and more into the image of your son. So, God, help us with that. Convince us and convict us of these truths. I pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen? You agree with that prayer? Are you with me? Amen. All right, there we go. It's a little better. Because God is God of gods, I can be certain of this, first of all, humanity's evident limitations. Humanity's evident limitations. Now, we're setting up a contrast here in this message between who God is and who we are, and particularly in this point, we begin to see the, the shockingly massive a difference between us and God. There's a massive contrast between us and God. And really, this gets us started on the essential problem that we have as we come to this particular passage today, and it, and it is this. Some of us in this room, some of us are God is too small and we're too big. Our view of who God is is entirely too small. And our view of ourselves is inflated. We think too much of ourselves. And we look at something like this, humanity's evident limitations. You go, I'm not limited by anything. Let's read some verses here, starting out in Daniel 2, 1 to 11. And we're going to see how this plays out and how there are some definite limitations in the example of some very powerful people. Uh, this is about uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. Now, these are all the senior advisors to Nebuchadnezzar. Don't be hung up on the fact that they're enchanters and magicians. There was really not a lot of difference between those who were religious leaders and those who were political advisors. The whole thing was one in ancient Babylon. And so, these are, this is his senior cabinet. These are the people who are his advisors on all matters of politics and ruling the kingdom. Now, he's really new at this. You can see it's only the second year of his rule over the entire empire of Babylon, and he probably inherited some of these advisors, and he maybe isn't in a place where he fully even trusts them yet. And as this whole thing plays out, you begin to see, see some fear on the part of the king. So he summons them to tell the king his dreams. They came in and stood before the king. Verse 3 now. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation. Okay, that is the normal way that happened. You tell the dream and they would interpret it back to you. Now, we might stop right now and say, why wouldn't Nebuchadnezzar tell them the dream? Because he's about to say, I'm not telling you the dream. You're going to tell me the dream and the interpretation. Nebuchadnezzar is afraid. He's terrified. Because he has only recently consolidated his power. And now he understands that if he tells this dream, it's possible that it gets interpreted that he's going to lose his power and that opens up the opportunity for some palace intrigue and some coup to take place. So he's terrified at this point. So verse 5, the king answered and said to the Chaldeans, the word from me is firm. If you do not make, to know, make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Bad day at work. Verse 6, but if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. 
Okay, they're going to go around the block a few times on this, okay? Verse 7, they answered a second time and said, let the king tell his servant to dream. Okay, that's the way it works, king. Tell us the dream and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty. Now we're talking about things that are certain. The king can say with certainty. Here's what he says, that you're trying to gain time. You're just stalling. You, you think you can get out of this because you see that the word for me is firm. And if you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. And the Chaldeans answered the king and said, this part they get right. There is not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. There are limitations to what human beings can do. I mean, I'm a dreamer. I'm a visionary type guy. I have ideas, okay? I have things that I want to do, and I like to reach for things and go for those things. I like to rally people to come and let's do that thing together, okay? That's me. But I understand that there are some limitations. There are some things, no matter how big the dream is or how great I think it will be if we could accomplish it together, I realize there's some things we cannot do. There's some places we cannot go. There are some uh, things that we cannot reach. No amount of rallying people or dreaming big dreams or having vision statements. No matter uh, how much we bring to the table. Listen, there's just some things we can't do. We have limitations and these guys are beginning to get it. There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand. No one can tell the dream and give its interpretation. For no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult. It's not difficult. It's impossible. And no one can show it to the king. And Now here, no one can show it to the king except the gods. Now, their, their theology aside, they're polytheists, okay, so they don't have that part right, but they are right in the sense that it's kind of like they got a part answer here. We'll give them part marks for this, okay? The part answer is divine intervention is the only thing that's going to bring about the thing that the king is asking for. No one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Whose dwelling is not with flesh. Now, there's a bit of foreshadowing here. Do you see it? No one can show it to the king except the kings, except, except, except the gods. There needs to be a divine revelation that comes, and we'll talk about that in a moment. And then they say, but, but the gods aren't with us. They don't dwell with us. They're not here with us. And yet we know, you start reading this back from where we stand and knowing about Jesus Christ who came in the flesh. God took on human flesh and dwelt among us. And so, these pagan advisors to a king, these power brokers, are actually speaking a word, a prophetic word that when we read it, we say, you know, actually, there is a God who dwells among us and who has taken on flesh. So there's limitations to what we can do, but there are no limitations to what God can do in the incarnation and in his power. Human beings have limits, things that we won't accomplish ever. And in light of the certainty I have about humanity's limitations, and I hope you have a sense of your own limitations for these Chaldeans and these advisors, it was that they couldn't tell the dream. For us, it's a whole long list of things that we cannot do. And if we're certain about our limitations, then we should also be certain about our response to our limitations before a holy God. And it is this, humility, that we would be humble in the face of that. But sadly, human beings, including every single person in this room, and I hope you're not offended by me lumping you in with this, but every person in this room thinks the world revolves around them. We are entirely self-centered and selfish people. The world does not revolve around you, and it does not revolve around me. Timothy Keller said this, if there, if there really is an infinite, infinite glorious God, if there really is an infinite glorious God, and we just sang to him, we worshiped him, 
We sang to this infinite, glorious God. We brought our voices to Him. We've given our, many people in this room, we have given our lives to Him to serve Him and to worship Him and follow Him. If there really is an infinite, glorious God, does it really make sense for the universe to revolve around us rather than around Him? I mean, that doesn't make any sense at all. Now think about King Nebuchadnezzar for a second, because that's who we're talking about him. For Nebuchadnezzar, the world really did revolve around him. He's not just a king. Later on, we're going to see that Daniel calls him the king of kings, a small k, small k, but he is, in that sense, the superpower of his time in history. All the other kings of the world were subservient to Nebuchadnezzar. I mean, this, this guy is an emperor over a global empire. And so he might rightly think, you know what? With all that I rule and how powerful I am, the world really does revolve around me. The advisors to the king, I mean, these guys are right up there with him. They are power brokers. They are orchestrating events and giving counsel and advice. And they are ruling with Nebuchadnezzar an entire empire. So they too could believe, you know what? I'm a Chaldean. I'm an enchanter. I'm a magician. I'm part of the king's inner circle. I too am something. The world revolves around me. So they might be excused really for thinking that. And we might sit here thinking, you know what, this doesn't really apply to me because I'm not a king, I'm not an emperor, and I'm not advising any kings or emperors. I'm not in a position of power. But the reality is, this self-centered thing, this I'm the center of the universe thing, it scales. It scales right down to my life and to yours. It scales right down into your marriage. Are you the center of all things in your marriage? Do you think that your spouse exists to make your life better? You see, that's making yourself the center of the universe in your marriage. When in fact, you're in your marriage to serve your spouse, to make them, uh, to, to lift them up, to bless them, to serve them. Kids sometimes, especially kids, listen, let me just pick on teenagers here for a second. You know, like, I mean, you're in your family and all of a sudden you think you're all that because you're a teenager. And I don't know how many homes all of a sudden become completely focused on the kids in the home and what serves them and what makes them happy. And the whole house is running on edge because, you know, you're having a crisis because you're in puberty and you like someone and the whole world's coming to an end. You don't want to do chores. You got something else to do. You don't like this food. You don't want to do what the family's doing. And everything's becoming focused on you. And let me tell you, just because you're a teenager doesn't mean you can't repent of that. There's some parents in the room enjoying that way too much. <laughs> in your workplace, are you the center of all things? In your small group, you're part of a small group, and do you dominate every breakout time? Do you think that you're the smartest person in the room, and you've always got something to share about the Bible? I got my insights on the Bible. Let me just share all of this. On your serving team, is it more about you than what you're doing together and about the team? I mean, it's so easy for us, no matter where we live, no matter what stage of life we're in or what strata of society, it doesn't really matter. We can make it about us. We can put ourselves at the center. And you know, for Nebuchadnezzar, you just need to go over to Daniel chapter 4 and we'll get there eventually. God will eventually humble him in a pretty significant way. And we want to be so careful that God doesn't humble us, that we don't put ourselves in a place where God would need to humble us. And instead, we need to humble ourselves before the Lord. Bob Deffenbaugh said this, one reason for our defective and diminished view of God is an overestimation of ourselves. Nothing is more humbling to man than to gain a fresh grasp of how we stand before a holy and omnipotent God. And to a large extent, the way we view humanity shapes our view of a wide variety of other matters. Because of this, we must give careful attention to the subject of the helplessness of humanity, our limitations. And so I'll tell you this because I love you. No one in this room is the center of anything. No one in this room is the center of anything. 
And so we're going to respond after each of these points. We have a statement of response. It's right there in your notes. And in light of the certainty I have about humanity's limitations, I should also be certain of my humility. I want to be certain of my humility. God in his place and me in mine. All right. Do you feel like that was an entire sermon all on its own and I could just close in prayer and we'd be done? Do you feel that a little bit? Do you feel that? I have three more points, so too bad. <laughs> Here's a second one. Because God is God of gods, I can also be certain of God's immeasurable power. Now, we looked at uh, one certainty concerning us, concerning humanity. Now, we're going to look at three certainties concerning uh, God himself. Because God is God of gods, I can also be certain of God's immeasurable power. This is um, uh, something we need to see about God. Nebuchadnezzar's advisors had confidence in their own power. But really, they were missing out. Verse 12, because of this, the king was angry. They had confidence in themselves, and then they failed. The king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out. He's going to follow up on, what, on his threat. The wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now the question arises right now, why wasn't Daniel in on this in the first place? And the reality is at this point, Daniel and his buddies are still like maybe 17, 18 years old. They came as kind of uh, young teens, 13, 14, maybe 15 years old. This is maybe 18 to 24 months after they had first been brought, the first deportation of the uh, cream of the crop of the young people, of the intelligent from the royal family, the good-looking young men and women. They were carried off into Babylon. This is just a short time later. But they had not yet reached the age where they would have been part of the king's actual advisors. And so while they're not part of the decision making and the advice being given, they do fall under the kill order. That doesn't even seem fair to us, but we're going to see in a moment how that's going to advance God's plan here. So verse 14, then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. Now, of course, he made it urgent because he feels threatened. He's afraid of his own advisors. And so that's why he sent this out. That's why the rush to this, verse 16, and Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time. So he boldly goes in front of the king. You think it's such a risk to go in front of the king. He's under a kill order. He doesn't care. There's, there's, there's literally no risk for him in this. He went in and requested the king appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation, might show the interpretation to the king. And he's not going to do this in his own power because he knows the limitations he has. He knows like all the other advisors that he can't tell the king what his dream is. And so what does he do? Verse 17, the very first thing he does after going to the king and buying a little bit of time, verse 17, Daniel went to his house and he made the manner known to Hananiah, to Mishael, and to Azariah, his three buddies. He says to them, notice, he told them to seek mercy from, God, from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. He gets them to pray. And his motive is, I don't think we should die for this. He doesn't want to die with his friends and so they're seeking the mercy of God that they might not die. And then... God moves in a powerful way. And by the way, when we're thinking about prayer, nothing says I'm humbly willing to admit my limitations and also say that only God's immeasurable power will do. Nothing says that like praying. As soon as we go to prayer, what we're saying is, I don't have it in me for this, but God, you do, and you're powerful, and you can make it happen. This is the right demonstration of that humi humility and, and the acknowledgement of limitations that we talked about. And it's the right play in terms of acknowledging God's immeasurable power. So verse 19, it's kind of matter of fact after this. They go to prayer. Then the mystery, verse 19, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. So he has a dream himself and he gets the, he gets the dream and he gets the interpretation. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered 
and said, blessed be the name of the God of God forever and ever. And we're going to look at this prayer in a few more minutes, but I mean, there's so much in this prayer. This could be a separate message all on its own. Daniel blessed the God of heaven because he gave him the answer to his prayer. And he prayed this powerful prayer. And all of this speaks to Daniel's trust in God. And I wish this were true of me. I wish this were true of me more than what it is. That I could face some trouble, that some trial or some hardship could come my way. And in the midst of it, I would just call up three buddies and I would just say, would you pray for me? And that I would so trust God that he was going to work it out no matter how it worked out, that I could go to sleep that night. Now keep in mind, they're teenagers and there's a death sentence on their heads. And Daniel went to sleep. I mean, what kind of trust in God do you have to have? And what kind of place of rest do you have to be in to be able to go to bed that night? We need to trust God for these things. Even with all the pressure, even with the hardships that we face, you're only going to get there when you trust a powerful God. And so here's the response line. In light of the certainty I have about God's power, I should also be certain of my trust in Him. If he's powerful, I can trust him. If I believe he can do it and he can, I need to trust him. All right, you see where we're going with this now? Because God is God of gods, I can be certain of humanity's evident limitation, of God's immeasurable power, and then see this next, God's supernatural revelation. God's supernatural revelation. So verse 24, Daniel goes in uh, before the king and makes sure that the king knows that this uh, didn't, this interpretation that he has now didn't come from any particular person. Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed, verse 24, to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went in and said thus to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste. Of course he did because they're all under this death order. And he said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, uh, just to bring clarity now, the king is saying, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Can you do both of those things? And Daniel answered the king and said, first of all, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. Human limitations. But get this underlined. There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. And he's going to go into this. He's going to tell him about future things. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what will be after this. What's going to come after your kingdom? And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me, I don't want you, king, to, under, to misunderstand what's going on here. I don't want you to think that I'm some great magician all in my own. This mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. This was given to me by God. This is a supernatural revelation. There's a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, he said in verse 28. He's giving God the credit every step of the way here. We need to be so grateful for that. That God has made known, not just to Nebuchadnezzar his dream, but God has revealed himself to us. God has made revelation available to us that we could know him and live for him. In fact, God has revealed to him in many different ways. And we could look at this, the revelation of God. When we begin to speak of this, God reveals himself. General revelation is God revealing himself in creation. The very creation itself, Romans 1, 19 and 20 says. The very creation itself testifies to who God is so that anyone who is not a believer by simply looking at the creation should know that there's a creator, that there is a God, that the creation itself cries out so that, Romans 1, 20 says, so that they are without excuse. 
That's general revelation of God. But then God in very miraculous ways has made himself known through what's called special revelation. And here's some examples of that. Physical appearances of God prior to the coming of Jesus are special revelation. And when we get to the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the, um, in the fiery furnace, you'll know that three were put into the furnace, and there was, but there was a fourth one in there who is described as one who has the likeness of the Son of God. That fourth one in the fiery furnace with the three young men is God. That's a physical appearance of God, and it's a special revelation of God. Miracles, dreams, visions, as we're seeing here in chapter 2. The Bible itself is a special revelation of God given by the Holy Spirit to human authors so that we could have God revealing himself to us. And then Jesus Christ is the revelation of God to us as well. God revealed himself in multiple ways. And, and we hold in our hands the word of God. And we have in our hearts the, the, the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus. And so we have in the Bible what he wants us to hear, what he wants us to be, and what he wants us to do. God has revealed that to us. It's not a mystery any longer. And everything God is revealing to Daniel is a setup for the greatest revelation of himself, which is his son, Jesus Christ, who again took on human flesh, dwelt among us, gave his life on the cross, and was resurrected from the dead. And when we think about Jesus as this greatest revelation of God and the Word of God, which is living and active and, and powerful in our lives, and how those two come together, John uh, 5.39 says this, Jesus said this himself, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. The Word of God points to Jesus Christ. We know Christ through His Word and through the revelation that God has given to us. And we can have certainty about this. The kind of certainty that you hear, again, back to Daniel 2, verse 29, he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. God has revealed himself to us. And through this word, Jesus speaks into every aspect of our lives. Many of you say that's one of the great things about being part of this church family is we just get the Bible open and every single one of us are just trying to hear something that we could start living out right away. That we want to hear the Word God taught plainly and practically into our lives. And that's what the Word of God does for us. That's what the revelation of God does for us. The Apostle Peter, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, said this. This is uh, 2 Peter 1, 19, and 21, 19 to 21. And we have a, the prophetic word more fully confirmed, certain of it, to which you would do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. Man can't do this. A powerful God can. A powerful God who's revealing himself can. No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Because there's nothing you will face in this life that is not dealt with in His Word. So we need to give ourselves to it, give our attention to it, in order to overcome all the frightening situations, all the threatening trials that come our way, everything that would seek to derail us and take us off course and away from Christ. John Lennox said this, through the prophets, we are meant to hear the voice of God authenticating itself and leaving us in no doubt that the transcendent and eternal is no less substantial than the material. In other words, those last two things, what God says and what God does and will do overcomes what we see and experience. The reason why we become so self-centered is because we're, we're feeling everything and we're acting according to what we're seeing, not according to what we're believing. God wants us to overcome that with the revelation of himself and what he said in his word. We can overcome all of that. And so we pay attention to the word. Not half-heartedly. Some of us approach the word of God half-heartedly. It's not enough. 
You can't approach the word of God as if it's just some weekend ritual. For some here in this room, the last time you heard the word of God read was when we were here last weekend or the weekend before. And that's not nearly enough. This is the revelation of God to us. So it's not a weekend religious ritual. We can't do it in part as if we can kind of go through this and go, you know what, I like this part, but I don't like this part. We can't just edit out the parts we like and use those ones and discard the rest. We have to give our full attention to the Word of God. You see, Daniel was in a place where he was desperate to hear from God. He needed that revelation of God. And we need to live in this place of, of desperation. We need to be more desperate people. Like, I need a word from God today. I'm here because I need to hear God speak to me. I need a word from Him. That's the desperation we need to bring to the table. To have Him reveal a truth that we need to hear just like Daniel needed to hear a truth. And so the response statement is this, in light of the certainty I have about God's revelation, I should also be certain of my attentiveness to the word. Am I certain about that? Is that something I'm bringing to the table? Am I attentive to the word of God? And I think we can get super practical on this point, in fact, and talk about our attentiveness to the word of God. Some of you are very attentive to it. Some of you not so much at all. And could we just even decide here that we're, we're all going to take one step forward. I'm, I'm just going to try and be a little further along than where I am right now. Whatever my starting point is, I'm going I'm to do one more thing to become more attentive to the Word of God. In fact, here's some suggestions that I have. First of all, if you don't own a Bible, buy a Bible. If you don't have one at home and you didn't bring it here today, go to the Resource Center and buy one before you leave here today. But get a Bible. If you don't have one on your smartphone, you have a smartphone, get a, get a Bible app on your smartphone and start reading the Word of God. If you don't uh, bring your Bible, say, I own a Bible, but I just don't bring it. And I don't have it open while you're teaching it. I mean, I'm reading all kinds of verses here. Are you just taking my word from it? for it? You shouldn't be. You should be seeing it in the Bible while I'm reading it. Have that Bible open in front of you and start marking it up and making some notes and following along. Grab the sermon notes as you come in and make sure you're jotting some things down and then maybe keeping that in your Bible and Wednesday getting, getting that out and looking at that again and going, you know what, I remember that and I've been challenged already in that area and why am I not doing that? Remind yourself about, this shouldn't be like the end point. This is like the beginning. We hear the sermon and now I gotta kind of live that out. I wanna believe that. You could join one of our small groups or one of our study groups. And our study groups are specific studies on certain uh, books of the Bible or certain topics. And maybe you want to join one of those. And today's a sign-up day for that in the West Lobby. And maybe you want to do that and get out there and sign up for one of those study groups. Or maybe you want to join one of our small groups in people's homes. And, and, and you're going to study this sermon. There's going to be questions written by Pastor Dwayne. And you're going to dive a little deeper into the application. And you're going to hold each other to account and pray about these things. You need to join a small group to go a little deeper into this. Um, what about on weekends when you miss? People miss weekends all the time, and, and I'm always encouraged when people say, you know what, I listen to the audio podcast, or I watch the video, and, and I, I never want to miss anything in a series, and, and maybe you just need to make a commitment on a weekend when we're away, then we're going to sit down and we're going to watch the sermon together and make sure we haven't missed any part of what God has for us. And, and maybe... Maybe you're doing all of the things I just mentioned. Maybe all of that is already happening in your life, but now you want to take another step and maybe you want to do a different kind of study. Maybe you want to do one on your own or maybe you want to take an online Bible course. Maybe you've never read through the Bible and the thing that you need to do is get on one of the Bible reading programs and there's so many of them available online and just read through the Word of God in a systematic way. You need to give your attention to the Word of God and again, I would just encourage you wherever you're at, no shame on anyone here. I'm not asking you to do three things or six things. I'm just saying pick one thing more than what you're doing right now and start doing that and be more attentive to the Word of God. All right, one more to go. Because God is God of gods, I can be certain of God's absolute sovereignty. He's in charge, amen? He's in charge. He's in charge. Although I admit that it doesn't often look like it in my life. I mean, there's a certain parts of my life where I just go, well, that doesn't seem like God's in charge of that. 
And I'm sure there's a few of you in this room who would say the very same thing. All right, picking up at verse 31 then, uh, this is the dream. Daniel's now going into the king. He's going to tell him exactly what he saw. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on the feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron the clay, the bronze, the silver, the gold, all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now that's the dream that Nebuchadnezzar saw. And that's the dream that God gave to Daniel so that he too would know what it was all about. And then Right into the interpretation, verse 36, this was the dream. Now we'll tell the king the interpretation. You, O king, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory. Who's sovereign? I mean, God is. And Nebuchadnezzar has what he has. The most powerful man on the planet has what he has because God gave it to him. God is sovereign over all, not Nebuchadnezzar. And so it was God that gave him all of this, verse, uh, where we have verse 38, and into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven. I mean, this is everything Nebuchadnezzar has in his kingdom, making you rule over them all. Then he says to him, you are the head of gold. You can almost hear Nebuchadnezzar go, Phew. I was hoping that was the way it was, right? I mean, now he knows he's the head of gold. Then he begins to go through the interpretation of the other kingdoms. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And then there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in a marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in, those day, in the days of those kings, the king of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever." Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king, revelation has been known to the king, what shall be after this. The dream is certain. Dream is certain. We're looking for certainty. The dream is certain and the interpretation, he says, is sure. And so we have this interpretation and Daniel 2 is paralleled with Daniel 7 and Daniel 7 actually fits chronologically into this spot in the book of Daniel. So next week we're going to look at Daniel 7 because we're studying the book chronologically. And so when we look at the interpretation that Daniel's given, the head of gold is the kingdom of Babylon. The, the kingdom of silver is uh, the kingdom of the Medes and Persians, which we actually see by the time we get to Daniel chapter 6 toward the end of uh, Daniel's life. That's the uh, uh, King Cyrus and, and the Medes and Persians. Uh, the bronze kingdom is ancient Greece under Alexander. I mean, this is all coming to us hundreds of years before these kingdoms. The legs of iron are ancient Rome, which lasted about 500 years. The feet of iron clay is the kingdom of restored Rome, which uh, many believe is extending right into our own day now, the, the last uh, 1,500 years. And the crushing rock, of course, is the kingdom of God, which came at the time of Jesus Christ. And all of this is communicating the sovereignty of God and the preeminence of God's kingdom in prophecies that were given hundreds of years prior to these kingdoms being established. And all of this, as you begin to think about what's the point of these grand visions and these dreams, and when we get to Daniel 7, we'll ask the same question again. But remember that the book of Daniel is coming to people who are in exile. Nebuchadnezzar's ruling over Israel. And a bunch of the brightest and best have been deported to Babylon and are in exile there. And God is giving them this prophecy through the king, through the emperor, to say to them, I'm still with you. 
I have your back. And in fact, all of what you perceive to be these powerful kingdoms, all of them will come to nothing because of the kingdom of Jesus Christ, who is himself the rock. He's the one who's cut, not with any human hands, who comes and crushes all of these other kingdoms. And so this isn't just an encouragement to the exiles. This is an encouragement to me and you. Because there's no doubt as we look at the news stories that are coming across our news feed, the governments of this world, so much disruption, so much uncertainty, so much nonsense coming even from Western rulers. And in the midst of it, God is saying, the most powerful will be crushed, will become dust, and will blow away with the wind in the face of the triumphant and powerful and all-sovereign kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's what he gave his life for. He was resurrected from the dead to defeat death in the grave and to establish his sovereignty over the kingdoms of this world. And so Jesus Christ is sovereign. He's Lord and King over the nations. And He must be sovereign over me and you. But does it look like it? Are you absolutely surrendered to Him? Is every corner of your life in submission to Jesus Christ? When something hard comes your way, do you make it about you and cry out to God, unfair? When something good comes your way and blessings flow, do you hoard that for yourself and do you take credit? Look what I've done. Look what I've accomplished. Look what I have. Are you the center of all things or are you giving glory to the God who's actually sovereign over all of these things? Who's in control of it all? Make your life about Him, not you. R.C. Sproul said this, the most perplexing theological question is not why there's suffering in the world. And so many people ask that question. It's not like, why is my life so hard and why am I going through this? That's not the most perplexing theological question. The most perplexing one is why God tolerates us in our sinfulness. God, why haven't you completely wiped me out through some trial? God, why do you continue to give me good things when I don't deserve them? I'm a sinner. I've, I've put the chasm between me and you. I'm the reason why Jesus Christ had to give his life on the cross and shed his blood. Why hasn't God wiped me out? That's the most perplexing question that we can ask. Why does a powerful God, verse 21 says, to go back into that prayer we didn't look at, why does a powerful God who changes times and seasons and who removes kings and sets up kings, a, a God who can do that, why does that God care about me at all? Why does he love me? Because he does. All that he's doing, everything in the book of Daniel is to make a way for us to be restored to him, to make a way for us to be in relationship with him, to make a way for us to be forgiven of our sins. So what's our response to him? Well, look at Nebuchadnezzar's response. First of all, in verse 48, the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts. He made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, chief prefect over the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request to the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. And Daniel remained in the king's court. So the first thing that Nebuchadnezzar did, kind of, well, not the first thing, but one of the things he did was to esteem Daniel, to reward him, to, to, to bless him for what he had done. But his first response, notice verse 46, then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face. Now, in a slightly misguided direction, of, of this homage, he paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be made, um, uh, be offered up to him. And the king answered and said to Daniel, now here his theology is better. Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings, a revealer of mysteries for you have been able to reveal this mystery. Listen, 
Nebuchadnezzar's first response is worship. You go, well, that makes sense that he would worship God. This is the supreme emperor of the most powerful kingdom of the world. And he fell on his face before Daniel, a young Jewish teenager. Don't miss how awesome this moment is and how extraordinary it is. Because there's no president of any nation of this world. There's no king or prime minister who's ever bowing down to a teenager or anyone. He was honoring Daniel's God for what he had done. He recognized his superiority, his sovereignty. He fell on his face and said, truly, your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. And so here's our response. In light of the certainty I have about God's sovereignty, I should also be certain of my worship of Him. And we're going to worship this God of gods. We cannot be certain of much in this life. There's so much disruption all around us. But we can be certain of our God. And we can pray to Him as Daniel prayed to Him. And that's the way we're going to close. In fact, I just want you to set everything aside for a moment and close your eyes with me right now and just bow your heads. And this is where we're going to come back to these verses in this prayer that Daniel prayed. And this is our response to God because he's revealed much to us. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever to whom belong wisdom and might he changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. And I love this next part. He reveals deep and hidden things. And he knows what's in the darkness. He knows what's in your darkness. He knows what's ahead of you. And the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise. For you have given me wisdom and might. And have now made known to me what we asked of you. For you have made known to us the king's matter. <laughs>